Bienvenidos and welcome to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. In tonight's program, we focus on the island of Puerto Rico. We'll begin by taking a listen to Democratic Congressman Luis Gutierrez responding to the Republican-led Congress's colonial solutions to the island's economic crisis. We'll also hear an interview with our own Vilma V, who speaks with Nelson Dennis, the author of War Against All Puerto Ricans, a book that chronicles the Puerto Rican nationalist movement of the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. And finally, we'll speak with Puerto Rican filmmaker and musician Fernando Samalot about his work to highlight the beauty and natural resources of the island as part of his One Island, One Journey project. All this and more, so stay tuned. As we were reminded yesterday by the Speaker of the House, uh, Puerto Rico is a U.S. territory and the Constitution explicitly gives Congress the power to, quote, make all needful rules and regulations respecting the territory and other property belonging to the U.S. And treating Puerto Rico as property is just what is being proposed by the Republicans in addressing the Puerto Rico debt crisis. My friend here, King George of England, he would be very proud. I will say the governor of Puerto Rico has been working hard to help move a bill forward. He and his staff have been honest and tireless brokers trying to resolve a crisis decades in the making. He should be commended, but what the governor and the people of Puerto Rico need are the same protections that any U.S. citizen has when their local government is in crisis and bondholders are circling and demanding payments. Puerto Rico needs the ability to restructure her debt so that the bondholders get something instead of nothing on their investment and the local government is not crippled and the people are not faced with the collapse of their basic services. Congress, the colonial power, took away the ability to declare bankruptcy, so that was never an option, a move worthy of King George himself. Yes, in the bill the Republicans put forward, there is a restructuring of Puerto Rico's debt. There is even a temporary stay of the debt payments for a short period of time. But at what cost? As I understand it, the debt restructuring for Puerto Rico would only take place if two-thirds of the bondholders on Wall Street approved. So, Wall Street fat cats can literally veto what the Republicans are proposing. So, on Wall Street, the fat cats know their Maseratis and yachts are safe, even if Puerto Rican school buses, hospitals, and roads fall further into disrepair. They will live like kings, just like my buddy here, King George. They even bragged about it at the hearing yesterday, saying that the market responded positively when the Republican bill was introduced because it signaled that Republicans have Wall Street's back protecting the profits of the hedge funds. I simply do not see things in the Republican bill that justify relinquishing what little sovereignty Puerto Rico has left to an unelected federal control board. It is a new level of colonial rule on top of what Washington already has, what Washington already misuses, what Washington usually rather ignores. King George of England would be pleased that even after 250 years, the U.S. Congress, this Congress, created to replace his tyrannical rule, has so fully embraced colonialism for its distant territories. As Speaker Ryan said yesterday, the fact that Puerto Rico government is, quote, ceding its authority to the Financial Control Board is a huge but necessary move that will ensure Puerto Rico will learn fiscal discipline from a board of experts, end quote. Oh yes, those poor islanders, those uncivilized Puerto Ricans will see how it's done up close and personal. 
The board will have the power to reduce the minimum wage, block overtime rules, block laws, regulations, and government contracts approved by the island's dramatic, uh, democratically elected government. It can overrule the legislature and the government if, and the governor if it does not like the budget, and it can fast-track energy projects at the expense of the environment. Does that sound familiar to you, Your Highness King George? Get this. Congress can impose a control board on Puerto Rico that can hire whoever they want at whatever salary they want, and the people of Puerto Rico have to pay for it. Period. Punto. 100%. The control board is paid for by those it controls. If that's not colonialism, I don't know what is. It's so good, King George here would be jealous. As if to add insult to injury, the bill addresses Vieques, the island off the coast of Puerto Rico, that the U.S. Navy bombed for decades. It turns over the land with no conditions. Now, I'm all for the people of Puerto Rico having control of the lands of Puerto Rico. But in the current crisis without protection, we all know what's going to happen. Hotels, restaurants, and businesses seeking to profit will be looking for bargain prices and will be out to profiteer, just like the pirates who used to control those waters. Mr. Speaker, the people of Puerto Rico want jobs and an economy that allows them to live on the island and thrive. But so far, all the Republican majority has offered is more colonial oversight, more austerity, and more misery. I once again say this Congress should reject the King George approach and free Puerto Rico so that its hardworking people can build the island. We should put them, yes, the people above all other creditors, bondholders, and profit seekers. That ought to be our priority. The school children, the elderly, the working men and children, the police on the beat, they need us to stand up for them as human beings. And I call on my colleagues to join me in doing just that. Hello everyone, I'm Vilma V, and I have the wonderful privilege of speaking today with the author of a book about Puerto Rican history, which was written in a very approachable style. It's chock full of stories and interesting facts about the tiny island of Puerto Rico, which has been a colony since the U.S. annexed the island from Spain way back in 1898. The book is called War Against All Puerto Ricans, and the author is Nelson Dennis. Dennis graduated from Harvard College and Yale Law School, and for several years he was the editorial director of El Diario La Prensa, the largest Spanish-language newspaper in New York City. Are you with us, Dennis? Uh, yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for this great opportunity. Great. Well, thank you for being on the show. I want to start with the title of the book. It's called War Against All Puerto Ricans, Not Just Independistas or Nationalists. What made you title the book that there was a war against all Puerto Ricans? That's a great opening question, because, uh, because there's a specific and a, and a general context. Con- context where the specific is that th- those exact words were uttered by the police chief of Puerto Rico, a gentleman named Elijah Francis Riggs, E.F. Riggs, who uh, his police force shot four Puerto Ricans, three nationalists, and a fellow buying a lottery ticket in broad daylight, in October 1935, in what was known as the Rio Piedras Massacre. And he then immediately held a press conference 
He called the press, convened them, so that he could utter these words, that if Pedro Albizu Campos and the Nationalist Party continue to agitate the sugarcane workers and the university students, there would be war to the death against all Puerto Ricans. So that's a specific answer. The, the title was the words that were uttered by police chief Riggs to the entire island of Puerto Rico. The general context is that the reason Riggs was on that island was because Pedro Albizu Campos, the first Puerto Rican to graduate from Harvard and Harvard Law School, had just headed an island-wide agricultural strike that resulted in modest, but for Puerto Rico, very significant gains. It doubled the, the sugarcane workers' wages from 75 cents to $1.50 a day. It was not much, but it was a difference between, for a lot of them, starvation and not for their families. The moment that Albizu Campos succeeded with this agricultural strike, a new governor who was an army general, Blanton Winship, and a new police chief, a military intelligence officer named E. Francis Riggs, were sent down to the island to militarize the entire police force with the explicit purpose of squashing the, uh, the, the Nationalist Party and any attempt at, at in, independence. And so what, what happened as a result of that agricultural strike is a continuous set of, of violent events. The Rio Piedras massacre, I just mentioned. The Ponce massacre, where they slaughtered 17 unarmed men, women, and children, and even two police were caught in their own crossfire for a total of 19. The Utuado massacre, where people were again assassinated in broad daylight. The bombing of two towns, they bombed Hayuya and Utuado. They arrested 3,000 Puerto Ricans who were accused of being, quote-unquote, suspected nationalists. They instituted a Carpetas program, which were secret police dossiers on over 100,000 Puerto Ricans over a period of six decades, and these files were so, so, ma- so, so massive that they now total almost two million pages. They even created a law. It was called a, a gag law, La Ley de la Mordaza. It was Public Law 53. In 1948, it was on the book for nearly 10 years, so 57, which made it illegal, a felony, to say a word, sing, whistle a tune, sing a song about independence, or even to own a Puerto Rican flag. This is the kind of war against all Puerto Ricans that was conducted for decades. So that's the general context. And it was all based on money. It was, uh, there was a sugarcane economy, and the United States was going to be damned if it was going to be upset by Pedro Albizu Campos and the nationalists. Yeah, you just gave the great little synopsis of all the massacres and all the horrible things that have occurred. But let, let's start with the man that you mentioned right at the beginning who was agitating the uh, sugarcane workers, Pedro Albizu Campos. You mentioned that he was the first Puerto Rican to go to Harvard. But tell us a little bit about him when he was born and a little bit about his life. Well, you know, when you, when you, when you see the trajectory of, of this man, in a sense, he's a combination of Abraham Lincoln and, and George Washington. He's very much in the American vein. Um, he was made an American citizen because Puerto Ricans were made American citizens in 1917. And in a sense, it's, it's an American story. Uh, a person that, you know, really makes something of himself. He was born in 1891, some people say 1893, in the early 18, 1890s. Very poor circumstances. A little barefoot boy in, in Ponce, Puerto Rico, in the Barrio Tenerias section, which is a poor section. But he was brilliant, 
and um, he got scholarships. They sent him to the University of Vermont, but he was just, he stood out so much that from Vermont, Harvard offered him a uh, scholarship, and he went to Harvard in the early nineteen in nineteen twelve, and uh, graduated from Harvard College, Harvard Law School. Returned to Puerto Rico and to basically practice poverty law because he turned down all sorts of very lucrative offers to open up a one-man law office in his hometown of Ponce, Puerto Rico, and dedicate himself to the more transcendent objective of fighting for the independence of Puerto Rico. The operative word fight doesn't mean that he was going to shoot people and he was a wild-out revolutionary. It was based on what he had studied and developed at Harvard Law School. He studied the, the, the Treaty of Paris that that concluded the Spanish-American War, and very rightfully concluded that it was basically a real estate closing, and that the United States really didn't have any right to basically assume ownership of, of an entire island, because Puerto Rico had a charter of autonomy before it. Then what the United States do, it wasn't just political, it was economic. They came in 1898. 1899, Hurricane San Siriaco just happened to occur. It was the most one of the worst hurricanes of the of the century devastated the islands coffee crop tens of thousands of people were were left homeless the united states sent no relief but instead the following year they devalued the puerto rican currency and declared that it had to be turned into american dollars and each puerto rican peso was now worth only 60 american cents and those two currencies were actually of equal value imagine what that would mean here if every person in the united states suddenly lost 40 percent of of their accumulated of, of their income and of of their savings. That was in 1900. 1901, the Hollander Act presented a steeply graduated set of property taxes on every farmer in Puerto Rico. So you have these economic hits that the United States put in, put in place really fast. Uh, the immediate result, farmers lost their farms. If they tried to get loans, they had to go to what was called the American Colonial Bank. There was no usury law restriction, so the bank char- charged whatever interest rates it wanted. What, what it really wanted was not to make loans, was to have the farmers default so they could own the farms. Precisely what happened. By 1920s and 30s, 80 percent of Puerto Rico's most arable land was controlled by between 10 and 15 U.S. banking syndicates. And the four largest sugarcane centrales, Guanica, Fajardo, East Puerto Rico Sugar, and Aguirre, controlled over half of the acreage of all the sugar plantations in the, in the entire island. It was that centralized. First governor, the first U.S. civilian governor, was named Charles Herbert Allen. He served came in in 1901. He served almost 17 months. He handed in his first uh, his first yearly report to President U.S. President McKinley, and then he immediately, within three weeks, hightailed it up to Wall Street, became the uh, vice president of Morgan Guarantee Trust, and within 10 years, he was first treasurer, then president, then a member of the board of directors of the American Sugar Refining Company. Basically, the principal, the first, and the leader in this charge into the Puerto Rican economy, and that company that that american sugar refined company got grew so quickly that it at one, at one point operated 98% of the sugar refining capacity of all the united states and that company today is known as domino sugar Oh my this goodness. was Charles Herbert Allen. He was the first hit economic hitman to come to Puerto Rico, the very first civilian governor. So he set the template for the charge that came in after him. When they saw it, well, this guy was really smart. I mean, he was a capitalist par excellence. He didn't down to go down to, the, to govern or to legislate or to in any way embrace and incorporate Puerto Rico in, into the greater American society. He was very clear. That economic report, which is written about in detail in my book, was like a business 
business plan for Wall Street. He even took soil samples over different parts of the island to determine the relative productivity compared to Hawaii, Egypt, Louisiana, and three or four other countries. He did. A, a, he devoted himself to nothing but learning how to become as rich as possible, as quickly as possible, the moment that he left the island. And when other people saw what Charles Herbert Allen had done, you had a wave of carpetbaggers coming in, which continues to this day. You're listening to Nelson Dennis, and he's the author of the book, The War Against All Puerto Ricans. I'm your host, Vilma V. I want to keep us a little bit on Pedro Albizu Campos, just for right now. Tell us how long he was imprisoned, and was he subject to radiation experiments? That's where a book helps because it's easy to say this happened and uh, and you, you didn't nobody knows about it and then you get written off as fringe journalism or a crackpot. But there's a larger context and we were able to explore it in my in my book. I, I devoted three chapters to it. There was a woman named Eileen Wilson who wrote something called the Plutonium Files, for which she won the Pulitzer Prize. And in that book, and she did a three-part series, too, for newspaper she worked, she disclosed and documented that from the period of the 50s to the late 70s, there were 16,000 undisclosed radiation experiments conducted by the U.S. Department of Energy on people throughout the United States and especially on prison populations. And undisclosed, many of these people didn't even know that it was happening at the time. So this is the context within which we approach Albizu Campos. Albizu Campos at one point was, was being laughed at by the guards in La Princesa prison as El Rey de las Toallas, the King of the Towels. The reason is because he was wrapping his head and body in cold, wet towels and slathering his skin with, with Jurgen's cold cream lotion. Well, it turns out that he was being radiated to death. And when you look at the pictures of it, uh, of him, it looks like he had been flipped over on a barbecue grill. Um, uh, a Cuban, the head of the Cuban Cancer Association, Orlando Daumi, went and diagnosed him and said this man is being radiated. A Geiger counter was brought closer to his body, and it pinned the needle to maximum, and then the Geiger counter stopped working. That, that was how strong the, the radiation was. The Cuban legislature pr promulgated a resolution asking for the temporary extradition of, of Albizu Campos to Cuba so that they could treat him and then bring him back to wherever they, they wanted, but to get him out of that of that environment. It was written about in Mexico, Argentina, Chile, all over the South American press were writing about, about, about this. But the United States made sure that they kept a, 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 a wall, a moat around Albizu Campos so that no doctors after Daumi were able to go and diagnose his condition. So now there is a increasingly, constantly mounting body of evidence, and I was able to see it from the FBI carpetas because I ordered thousands of pages on Albizu Campos, many of which were regarding the period in La Princesa when he's being radiated. And it's become abundantly evident from what I, from what I read. Um, and it didn't even take a lot of correlating. It was, it was facially apparent that his, he was being subjected to long-term torture, and it was called TBI, Total Body Irradiation. And it was being conducted not only in his prison, but 
throughout the uh, throughout the United States, there was a place called Oak Ridge that was a center for the for these government grants that were con- conducting these studies. So um, the evidence to me is overwhelming, and I present that evidence in the book that Albizu Campos, who was derided and and ridiculed as the king of the towels, was actually subjected to radiation for many years until it killed him. Five agents to keep that six-man rotation. 
Six FBI agents followed him everywhere he went, all around the island. They would interrogate anyone who, who spoke with him. They would even arrest people for speak, for speaking with him. So, as a so, look at his adult life. He advocates for the independence of Puerto Rico. They don't take him seriously. The the moment though he leaves this, this strike, they trump up the charges because they, they when they they couldn't find him guilty on the first trial. They had a retrial, and they re-impaneled the jury with 10 North American jurors and two Puerto Ricans on it. He gets sent to jail in Atlanta Penitentiary in 1936, and then in the aggregate, 25 years in jail, four years followed by the FBI, and he dies in 1965. That's the life that the United States created for this heroic, brilliant individual who enunciated very basic human principles in Puerto Rico and simply reminded the United States of its own founding principles of government by the consent of government and that all men are created equal. That's all that he basically did. So that's why Albizu is, he's Nelson Mandela, Jose Martí, Simón Bolívar, all, all wrapped up into one. And he, and, and he really, really belongs in that pantheon of, of Renaissance figures who have a very large perception of human potential. And mm-hmm. that's what he wanted for Puerto Rico. That's not what we have in Puerto Rico today. In a sense, this is the 50th anniversary of the death of Albizu Campos this year. April 21, 2015, 50 years later, that what we're seeing on the island with the public deaths and the, the inability, the dysfunctional relationship between Puerto Rico and the United States that now isn't really working for anyone, well, in a sense, this is the legacy and the ghost of Albizu Campos coming back to remind everyone of, of what he was saying all his life. And speaking from, from another figure who had a huge impact on Puerto Rico, but whose legacy is quite different, let's talk a little bit about the very first elected governor of the island and airports named after him, Luis Muñoz Marín. What can you tell us about his life and times? Well, his father, Luis Muñoz Rivera, was a very revered figure because he's the one that negotiated the Carta de Autonomía, the Charter of Autonomy, with with. Uh, Emperor with Sagasta from Spain, and uh, and basically brought Puerto Rico to the cusp of being a sovereign state in 1897-98. But then, literally within a matter of weeks, the Spanish-American War started, and that that basically got thrown in the in the dustbin of history. The Charter of Autonomy. Luis Muñoz Marín was his son. Um, his his father died at a relatively early age for Luis when, when Luis was 16. And for a while, Luis really wasn't thinking politics. He was thinking Greenwich Village. <laughs> he he bummed in and out. He married a woman named Muna Lee, but he didn't, and he had two children and didn't really pay much attention to them. Um, Muna Lee would, for instance, be in Puerto Rico, and Luis Muñoz Marín, with her two infant children, with, staying with uh, Luis Muñoz Marín's mother, Amalia, but Luis would be in Greenwich Village. He apparently developed some some bohemian habits as well that followed him through life. And um, he, when he went back to Puerto Rico in the early 30s, he was basically broke, which is why he, he went back. He had run out of money. He couldn't get any more money out of his uh, out of his wife and mother. So he sort of went back with, with a tail between his legs. But he had a, a, a safety net because he his father had owned La Democracia newspaper, and it was still there. So he started working for La Democracia, suddenly realized, whoa, there is a legacy that I can tap into here. 
and he cashed in on it. He, he ran, and he became a senator in 1932. He had no thought of, of going into politics before, but he saw this opportunity, and it worked. Yeah, it seems like and, he traded on his name a whole lot. And then it, at some point, there was some legislation in the U.S. Congress to allow for Puerto Rico to gradually gain independence, and he played a key role, it seems, in preventing that from happening. Well, um, and you're asking really good questions. I appreciate it because I noticed that you're just at the right time. You sort of refocus. Just <laughs> as about, I'm, I'm about to go way off the topic. <laughs> so I appreciate it. So you're right. So he's elected, 1932, on the uh, Partido Popular Democrático, the PPD party. And their slogan was, uh, they had this flag with Ibaro, uh, which is a country person in the middle, and then the words, Pan, Tierra, Libertad. Bread, land, liberty. The liberty, obviously, an explicit reference to the liberty of Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. which is, again, obvious, means being free of the, you know, the United States. So that was not only a part of the platform, this was a part of their flag, on liberty. And he gets elected on that. However, when the FBI, which was running these carpetas programs on people, developed a very healthy file on him, it included some documents, according to the FBI documents, multiple and reliable informants that Luis Munoz Marin was a narcotics addict. And that's what I sort of uh, obliquely referenced about Greenwich Village. Um, but unfortunately for the island, he developed a, uh, a habit of smoking opium. And uh, that became known. He was actually even re- referenced in Puerto Rico at the time as El, El, uh, El Moto de Isla Verde, the junkie of Isla Verde. Wow. And um, in his own autobiography called Memorias, he devotes three or four pages to a, a very large meeting of the entire assembly of his party, hundreds of people, where he w- was forced to stand up and, and basically deny the fact that he was a narcotics addict. So this is something that followed him through his life, and he even wrote about it himself, obviously denying it. So here's how it relates to the tidings bill. The, um, the first FBI report that puts this all together is dated April 1943. Now, at that point, uh, Luis Munoz Marin was now, he, he had grown politically, and he was now the majority leader of the Senate. He was the principal political figure at the time. The governor was still an American U.S. person named by the U.S. government. So he it was the, the, the top Puerto Rican in the, gov- in the Puerto Rican government. But in April of 1943, when this document came out, it coincided with the, the, the proposal by U.S. Senator Miller Tidings, who was the chairman of the Senate Insular Affairs, Insular Affairs Committee. And it was a, the Tidings bill provided a pathway to independence similar to the one that was proposed to the Philippines, which the Philippines took. But uh, Luis Munoz Marin, once they had this information on him, he became basically... He was uh, he, has, he was on a very short leash, and he and the United States had this information but withheld it. They these were classified documents. They were only recently declassified over the last decade, and I was able to, as a lawyer, to, to foil them to do freedom of information law requests. And and in my book, there's an image of the a full page image of that document itself regarding what I'm talking about. So once the, gov- the U.S. government had this information on Luis Munoz Marin, you suddenly see this 180-degree turnaround. That very month, he goes up to Washington to testify and lobby 
against the tidings bill, saying that independence would not work for Puerto Rico, that it would be destructive and that Puerto Rico couldn't even survive. I mean, he, he went out and put all the, all the rhetorical stops up in Washington. He didn't only do it in 43. He did it in 43. When there was another tidings proposal in 45, he did it again. And then there was a quasi-proposal in 48, and he went up there again. Repeatedly, he, as the principal spokesperson for, the, for Puerto Rico, would go up and lobby against the tidings bill, even though his own party, the Partido Popular Democrático, had voted nearly unanimously in favor of the tidings bill. He went up and spoke against his own party unilaterally, basically as his own spokesperson, but claiming that he spoke for all Puerto Rico, saying that they did not want independence. Can you imagine that? También los panderos por formar una plena en la huelga de los muelleros. Confiscaron los guiros, también los panderos por formar una plena en la huelga de los muelleros. Según la historia lo cuenta la huelga de los muelleros, fue en el año 38 sucedió en el mes de enero. Confiscaron los guiros, también los panderos por formar una plena en la huelga de los there's so much in the book that you just read it and you're just shaking your head you're just like it's unbelievable been just a fascinating read but I want to bring us up a little bit to the present and then talk a little bit about the why you wrote this book and what you hope to accomplish because I believe that you couldn't surveil and oppress Puerto Ricans without the collusion and assistance of native Puerto Ricans and people who live there so what do you think about this situation that often pits Puerto Rican against Puerto Rican, the continued division, what is your take or any possible solution you have to the divisiveness that continues to exist and seems by many, by many accounts to have been by design by the U.S.? But what do you make of that continued division, Puerto Rican against Puerto Rican, the history of those who have been involved in the FBI who were colluding against their own countrymen? Well, I think that the, the initial Puerto Rican character, as shown by the Taino and Arawak Indians, inheres from the anthropology and the geography of the place. It's La Isla del Encanto. It's like a Garden of Eden. It is so beautiful and so productive and plentiful, which is why the United States was, you know, so aggressive about it, that it naturally led to a gregarious, open, sharing 
trusting people because that's the nature of the sunlight and the and the sun-kissed beaches and the productive soil. There was no reason for a an indigenous natural population to be anything other than sharing and trusting and collegial because that's the, that's the environment. That's the that's the the living reality of Puerto Rico. There's no need to be any well any any different. However, when when Christopher Columbus came on his second trip in 1493 with with 17 ships and he landed in Puerto Rico, the trusting uh, uh, natives, the, the Tainos, they gave him gold. They showed him the gold and they showed him where it was because they're so trusting. Well, what happened? Well, the European mentality set in, and they enslaved the, the, the Tainos and then forced them to bring in a, a quota of gold every month, and, or they would cut off their hands. So you, this is that, you know, that's a very immediate, stark cultural juxtaposition, mm-hmm. two different ways of dealing with life and with what God has given us. The, when the Americans came in, they were w- welcomed to some extent as, as potential liberators from that, from that legacy, but they did it even worse. And so, again, a natural, trusting, sharing people. You had six decades of carpetas, 100,000 files, over 100,000. And in order to create that, you need informants. Now, this doesn't mean that, not, that, that the Puerto Ricans were naturally mistrustful, disloyal, and that they were ready to, to rat on each other. This means that the FBI went in and they intimidated, coerced, did whatever it took. And it's very simple. You just bring someone into your station house and say, we heard certain things about you, and they just make it up. And then they bring and they say, but we know that you know, you're, still, you're still a good guy, but we need you to help us with this other person. And so they, that's how they start. They have all sorts of ways to get into people and, and divide brother against brother. They even did it in the highest ranks of the Nationalist Party, where Faustino Diaz Pacheco was informing for 15 years on Raimundo Diaz Pacheco, who was the commander of the, of the, of the youth cadets of the Nationalist Party. He was Albizu Campos' right-hand person. So the, you, for, if you see that three generations, 60 years is about three generations. So in the collective memory and therefore in the DNA of our island, we have increasingly accumulated this sense of, of paranoia, of someone looking over you, of, of someone oppre- oppressing you, seeing everything that, that you do, and that there be informants all, all around. That is very conducive to people not sharing, not trusting, being a, a, a little more self-oriented, because their natural impulses have been have been stifled, have been cut short. And so even though you, one could say, well, the, it was Puerto Ricans that were in those files, that, that there was a very deep root to that. It was the United States that brought in this poison and made people turn against each other. And as part of the politics that we have today in Puerto Rico, I have to lay it at the United States' foot for doing that. That's the voice of Nelson Dennis. He is the author of the book, The War Against Puerto Ricans, and he's speaking with me today. And just bringing us back to the current as well, there's some startling statistics about Puerto Rico currently that since 2010, 33,000 government jobs have been eliminated, the highest unemployment rate than anywhere in the United States, $70 billion in public debt and $13 billion in unfunded pensions. And I guess the saddest part of all is a murder rate that's six times higher than what happens in the U.S. and on par with a civil war zone like the Congo and the Sudan. That's all from your book. 
Tell us what you see as a solution to what looks like a terrible situation. And it's a good question, but although they, those all look like little different points, statistical points on a map, there's a connective link, a glue to, to all of it. Oh, I agree. And it, harkens, and it harkens back to the relationship of 117 years ago. The United States was very adept at creating maximal stress on, on, on an organism known as Puerto Rico. At the, from the outset, and from that stress, they shook loose the property of the of the farmers, so that the banks could get, get control of eighty percent of the acreage. So we are seeing that same same. It's not even a strategy because they do it um, by entropy. It's almost like uh, like Hannah Arendt's the banality of evil. You don't have to plan it; you just let it happen. Mm. They they they've done that very over the last ten years. Those twenty three thousand layoffs of government workers, that public debt, the fiscal austerities, the eleven point five evil that they've just cre- created, the the sales tax, gas. Gasoline taxes going up twice in the last year. Water and electric rates that are that are going sky high. Increased small business and property taxes. All of the, these fiscal austerities, the scale backs of pensions, as you mentioned as well, were inflicted because the United States economic sector told the Puerto Rican government, "If you do this, we will not downgrade your public debt. Do this." And we will maintain your public debt on, the, on an even keel, and you, that way you'll still have access to the credit markets and be able to continue functioning as, with your credit line as a government. So Puerto Rico did that in good faith. And then Moody's, Dun & Bradstreet, and Fitch, the three rating services, went ahead and did precisely what they said that they wouldn't do. Mm. They downgraded Puerto Rico $73 billion in public debt to junk bond status. In doing so, they they significantly raised the interest rates, the premiums on that debt, and that is why now Puerto Rico is in a downward spiral of rapidly accumulating unserviceable debt. That's why we have an 11.5% evil, which is a 11.5% sales tax, essentially, because the United States has not been dealing in good faith. At the same time that they're inflicting all these austerities on the working working class, the poor, and the middle class Puerto Ricans, there is an Act 22, it's called, it's a law, that extends a 20-year complete tax exemption on all interest, dividend, and capital gains income to foreign investors from the United States, one of the leaders of which is a fellow named John Paulson, who made $15 billion for his hedge fund in 2007, betting against the American economy, betting against homeowners, taking advantage of defaulted loans, buying, buying distressed properties for pennies on the dollar. Basically a vulture, capitalizing on people losing their homes. John Paulson has come into Puerto Rico under that Act 22, that 20-year tax abatement, and he's developing a $500 million Dorado Beach resort complex and other things all over the island, and there's other millionaires at billionaires doing as well. Bloomberg News, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and even New York Mag- New Yorker magazine have, are, have all become the carnival barkers for this freak show that, has, that is becoming the Puerto Rican economy. They're exhorting. They're, they are loudly proclaiming that Americans should go down and invest in Puerto Rico because it is a beautiful tax haven. So what you have is you're getting the gentrification of an entire island. The Puerto Ricans are leaving the island at record rates because they can't afford to live there because 
the jobs the jobs aren't available at the same time that you're getting a stampede of billionaire Americans buying up the properties that that the Puerto Ricans leave behind for pennies on the dollar. That is a an, almost a mirror image of what happened 117 years ago, and that's why my book has a, has a sort of a historical grounding effect because it allows people to see that there is a long the illustrious context for what's been happening in Puerto Rico over the last five years. And that's the voice of Nelson Dennis. He's the author and attorney of a book, his new book, called War Against All Puerto Ricans. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, Nelson Dennis. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm your host, Vanessa Bohm, and you're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza on KPFA 94.1 FM. Well, tonight we have the pleasure of speaking with someone who has embarked on an amazing journey to document the landscape and the natural environment of the island of Puerto Rico, artist, musician, and photographer Fernando Samelot with Barbara Cruz Morales are spending a year visiting different parts of the Caribbean island along with taking breathtaking videos and photographs as part of his One Island, One Journey project. His stunning and inspiring work has certainly captured the attention of Puerto Ricans on and off the island and many more. Fernando Samelot joins us now over the phone from Puerto Rico to tell us all about this exciting project. Gracias por hablar con nosotros. It's great to have you on the show, Fernando. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be able to talk to you. Well, you've been traveling around the island of Puerto Rico as part of this wonderful project. Can you tell us where you are right now and why you decided to embark on this artistic adventure through the island? This project originally started when I was living in the mountains of Utuado. It's a mountain town in Puerto Rico. I was living there for about a year, and every day I would go out and kind of get lost and just pick a different road to drive on and then spend hours driving, exploring, and meeting people and connecting with people. So I fell in love with that idea of kind of getting to know where I live. And that was just when I was living in one town. And it was funny because I lived there for a whole year, and every day I would see something new. Every day I would see something incredible. And that was just one pueblo. So I imagined, like, I want to get to know the rest of the island in the same way. And uh, so I kind of told myself that, I would do exactly that. That was actually three years ago uh, when I first thought about it. And uh, different things started happening and it got postponed because my energies were needed somewhere else. I was working with a group that deals with conservation and education about the importance of taking care of our environment. And that's where all of my energies were focused for a year. And then I finally found a break from that. So I decided to kind of just jump in, dive into this project where I'm pretty much getting to know my island and its people uh, in a very profound and deep uh, way. I also wanted to feel that I didn't have to go somewhere far away to have a true and magical like travel experience. You know, just in my own backyard is already full of all these incredible places and people and stories. And I kind of wanted to prove that to myself and to share that with people. And I think it's It's been coming across very organically and beautifully. Well, you've entitled your project One Island, One Journey. Why did you pick this title? I think the project itself has many different layers of it. So in a way, it's me getting to know the island 
And uh, it's also a process of me getting to know myself through connecting with my people and my heritage and my history. And and I think the aspect, you know, of that journey that implies a process of growth and learning and healing and transforming. So definitely goes well with everything that I'm experiencing right now. Well, one of my favorite images is when you film this enormous ceiba tree in the town of Peñuelas. The tree, which is considered by many to be very sacred, looks so stoic, and I imagine it's probably very, very old. And it is one of many moments where you capture the landscape and nature of Puerto Rico brilliantly. There's these amazing shots of views from way above, looking downwards, and interesting angles. How are you capturing these images? It's funny because a lot of people will usually ask us, like, wow, like, I love the production. How, how are you getting this done? Like, what is your team working with? And it's just me and my girlfriend, and we're shooting with our iPhones. But uh, for most of the project, our intention is also to collaborate with different artists from Puerto Rico, videographers, photographers, and drone operators. Those high-up shots you've seen are are pretty much uh, that has been the result of those collaborations that we've had. The one in Peñuelas in particular, which I really loved, was with a group from Florida that um, they were visiting to shoot a documentary, and they spent a day with us. We're all about that. We're all about connecting with people and collaborating. So it also opens up the whole like uh, range of the things we can pull off. Because, I mean, I would love to have a drone, but... You know, we pretty much live off of 10 bucks a day. It's a very DIY project and um, working with what we have and making the best of the tools we have. But when, whenever we don't have something, someone else does, and we're always welcoming them along. Well, you're not just going around the island taking breathtaking video and photos, but you're also spending time with community members, historians, people with stories to tell about the places you're visiting. Tell us why you're taking the time to do this and what this experience has been like for you. Uh, I think that um, I would say that the, the way to really know a country is through its people. And all of our experiences, you know, we're sharing all this natural resources and all this beauty in the, in the videos, but most of the places we go are thanks to people we meet. Like, we go to a town and we have no agenda. We're kind of improvising. And everywhere we go, we connect with people. And like you said, historians or biologists or artists. And through them, we get to have this firsthand and authentic experience of their town and its history and the places. That's my favorite part of this journey is kind of connecting with people everywhere we go. And uh, I think it opens up a whole a deeper dimension to the context that we're living in, because I think the people are the island, too, you know? Well, you are definitely connecting with the people in the island. The response to the project has been pretty amazing. I've read many of the comments on Facebook. And what strikes me the most is how emotional and moved people are by the videos you've created. Why do you think your videos have this impact on the viewers? I think that it connects the viewers with a part of themselves that maybe they kind of strayed away from. I've seen a lot of our audience, which I really am appreciated of because they're, they're the ones who are constantly giving us support. It's either people who are from the town we were just in, who were born and raised there, and they'll usually say things like, wow, I lived here my whole life, and I didn't know this was this beautiful. So it kind of helps them see their own beauty in a new light. It's either that or people who left the island and are very nostalgic of what they left behind. And you've had people say, like, this makes me want to go back, you know? And, and 
I think that a part of this project, I really want to be a mirror for people. I want, I want the people to love what they have and who they are. So they'll work towards and fight for bettering our situation because I think that's what is connecting with people. It's kind of like that sense of patriotism, but it's very authentic because there's something in, in nature that is in all of us, and especially all of us here who are born on this island. It's in our blood, you know, and um, I feel that that connection that kind of comes out through our work is something that I've definitely put a lot of conscious effort into. I put all of my I love into this project, so when people are receiving that, it's like it makes it very gratifying, and it keeps us inspired and motivated to keep doing this. I think that's a really important point. As many people know, Puerto Rico is going through some hard economic times, and Puerto Ricans, like many, many other Latin American immigrants, have felt like they needed to leave the island to look for other opportunities. And although Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens, um, it doesn't take away the pain of having to leave a home that you love and that you've grown up in to be somewhere else to make ends meet and to support your family. Exactly. And I completely understand, you know, the context and the hard times we're living in. And, you know, this work that we're doing is also part of a bigger life plan of mine where I want to help contribute to create an infrastructure of sustainable ecotourism in the island. So this first trip that we're doing is kind of us having the experience and getting to know and connecting with the people and the land and where some other people will see a crisis uh, always seen as opportunity and potential because we see it in the people. We're not just reading about it or watching it on the news. We're meeting these people who have their hands in the dirt every day and who are working, you know, to build a better tomorrow. And uh, at least for me, it's easy for me to stay hopeful when I'm seeing it with my own eyes. And I think that the answer to a lot of our problems are right in front of us. It has to come from accepting who we are and embracing it. You know, we're a tropical island. <laughs> we're a tropical island with all these beautiful resources and some of the most fertile land on the planet. You know, we, we've abused that a lot. We've been treating it like a industrial first world country instead of embracing the fact that we're a tropical island and we could be living off of ecotourism and agriculture and And I think, you know, it's not like I'm going to change the world in a day, but I meet all these people who are doing all this work, and it keeps me hopeful that, you know, a new world is possible, and people are working towards that every day. And I'm just kind of doing my little part in that. Who knows what it'll turn into. Well, you've also done an amazing job of including beautiful, dreamy, and magical music with your videos that evoke a sense of peace and tranquility and is maybe even sentimental. Are you creating your own music? Before I got into this, I was a musician. I guess I still am. But um, So these pieces are kind of born on the moment when we're sitting down and editing the videos. I wanted that to be a part of this trip too, to kind of keep me creative and creating. And again, it's funny because I'm just working with what I have. I only have my guitar and this cheap microphone I got, and we're just plugging it into the computer and doing what we can. And it's coming out beautifully. I mean, eventually I'd like to do something a little bit better, but again, I'm working with what I have. And I think that definitely the emotion of the music helps convey and helps the people connect with that sentiment that I'm trying to get across. I know this has taken a great deal of work and you are again on a very tight budget as well. You've managed to do so much so far. How can our listeners get more information or contact you if they'd like to support this amazing project? 
Um, yeah, I mean, they can find us on all our social media outlets. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash one island, one journey. They can find me on Instagram. My username is Simone Birch. And on Snapchat is Birch and Dirch, which sounds pretty silly, and that's exactly what it is. But it's probably my favorite social media outlet because it gets people to connect with me on a more personal and informal level. You know, we started this project with some savings, and we've been kind of reluctant to ask people for help. But as we've seen the support that the project has been receiving, and now that I understand it better, and I feel the support of the community we're creating, then we're probably going to start a crowdsource funding. Whenever we're going to put that out, they can definitely find out about it on our social media outlets. Well, you've been now to Adjuntas, Ponce, Peñuelas, and a couple of other places on the island. Can you tell us where you'll be off to next? Yeah, our next stop is in Lajas. We're pretty much hanging out the southwest of the island around now. We started in the mountains, which was really cozy, and now we're down to really dry and deserty and hot <laughs> coast. So uh, it's been really interesting. Uh, the change of scenery is always refreshing. So that's going to be our next stop, Lajas. Well, it's been a pleasure to speak with you, Fernando, about your project One Island, One Journey. I can say that at a time when all we hear about Puerto Rico are the negative headlines about the economic crisis, it's so refreshing to see your project that reminds us of the island's beauty and the creativity and hopefulness of the Puerto Rican people. And of course, I hope you make it to my family's hometown of Orocovis along your amazing adventure. And we'll make sure to update our listeners about your journey by posting your videos to La Raza Chronicles Facebook page. Claro, gracias a ti, un millón de gracias. Well, that does it for this Tuesday's La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. We wanted to let our listeners know that there's an exciting musical event coming up on Thursday, May 19th. The San Francisco International Arts Festival will be presenting the Colombian band Cimarron. The band combines Spanish, indigenous, and African roots that explore the rich heritage of the eastern part of Colombia. They'll be playing at Gallery 308 at San Francisco's Fort Mason Center for the Arts and Culture. That's Thursday, May 19th. For more information, go to the San Francisco International Arts Festival website. Tonight's program was produced by Vanessa Bohm, Julieta Kuznir, Nina Serrano, and Vilma V. If you want to hear this program again or share with others, you can find the program on SoundCloud. Just search for La Raza Chronicles. Make sure to also like us on Facebook to receive updates on news, arts, and culture desde el mundo latino. Stay tuned next Tuesday at 7 p.m. for more of La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. Hasta la próxima.